Hello and welcome to Pin Drop World's News, the show where we spin the globe, drop a pin on a different country or issue playing out on the world stage, and take a deep dive into it. I'm AJ Camacho, your host, and on today's episode, we're bringing you a special edition of Pin Drop, marking two years of war in Ukraine. Pindrop co-producer Nick Castillo will be speaking with military analyst and Russia expert Dr. Julian Waller to break down the current on-the-ground facts of the front line and for a broader view with renowned political scientist and author Dr. Henry Hale. The war in Ukraine began two years ago from the production of this episode. Despite the war in Gaza now attracting much international attention, it is still fair to say that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is one of, if not the, greatest international political development of recent years. For many analysts, it heralded the biggest shakeup of the international system since the end of the Cold War. It can be a little difficult even to remember the global view from the years before the war, when many interpreted Russia as a declining regional power and a malign actor, but not one capable of launching a war of such scale and global impact. Ukraine, a relatively poor country in Eastern Europe, rarely made U.S. headlines, even after Russia's 2014 seizure of Crimea. One can tell the story of the conflict between Ukraine and Russia beginning decades or even hundreds of years ago. Ukrainian nationalism and its conflict with Moscow goes as far back as, well, most nationalism in Europe to the mid-19th century. But one appropriate place to start the story of today's Russo-Ukrainian war is in the winter of 2014. That year, Following a pro-European Union and pro-democracy revolution that forced out the Russia-friendly government of Viktor Yanukovych, the regime of Vladimir Putin, fearing Ukraine's westward drift, sought to punish Ukraine for rejecting its preferred president. It seized the Crimean Peninsula, a region sentimentalized in Russian culture and the only majority ethnic Russian region in Ukraine. It later supported a separatist movement in the eastern Donbass region of Ukraine. Since 2014, Russia has occupied Crimea and sponsored a simmering war in the Donbass region that would go on to claim 14,000 lives between 2014 and 2022. The years between 2014 and 2022 saw significant changes in Ukraine. The government of Petro Poroshenko taking over post 2014, launched widespread reforms. Militarily, Poroshenko adopted Western-style military models, creating a less top-down command structure. Geostrategically, Poroshenko sought to improve ties with the West to mixed results. Ukraine came closer and committed further to EU accession, but did not attract much military assistance or attention from most Western capitals, even as the war in the Donbass region continued. In 2019, the now world-renowned Volodymyr Zelensky won a landslide electoral victory and continued Ukraine's westward trajectory. 
Much to the continual anger of Moscow, during these years, Ukraine launched a more nationalist cultural program, removing Soviet-era monuments, erecting new ones to historic nationalist figures, and eventually doing more to promote Ukrainian as the language of public life in Ukraine. The Kremlin, who had already launched a rhetorical campaign during the Euromaidan revolution, claiming that neo-Nazis were the driving force behind the protests, seized upon this cultural program as supposed proof that Kiev had been taken over by fascists. Within Russia itself, the period between Euromaidan, that's the 2014 revolution, and 2022 was one of meaningful change. The Crimean takeover was considered a success and was a highly popular move, even among those Russians less supportive of the regime. The next year, Russia brutally, but successfully, intervened in Syria to support the Assad regime. The Kremlin continued its increasingly conservative turn, which began after mass anti-Putin protests in 2011. Putin increasingly centered anti-Western, anti-liberal rhetoric as a cornerstone of his public persona and relentlessly cracked down on the political opposition, leading to the eventual imprisonment and recent death of famed opposition leader Alexei Navalny. At the same time, Putin himself appeared to become more and more interested in a particular vision of Russian history, spending much of the COVID-19 pandemic reviewing historical documents and publishing historical analysis of his own. This period most famously produced his 2021 essay on the historical unity of Russians and Ukraines. In this essay, Putin argues that Ukrainians, Belarusians, and Russians belong to a single historical cultural entity that has been unjustly severed into three pieces. A year later, Putin would repeat this same idea in a speech televised across Russia, that Ukrainian statehood was a historical aberration created by the Bolsheviks and deserving of undoing. They are the Novorossia, historic uh, lands we're talking, Kherson, Lugansk, Donetsk, Zaporozhye regions, they, you have seen the barbarities uh, of the neo-Nazis in the regions captured by them. Uh, the Banderas, Banderas followers and the Nazi um, uh, mercenaries are torturing uh, the peaceful citizens. That night, February 24th, 2022, Russia launched an all-out invasion of Ukraine. 360,000 Russian soldiers flooded into Ukraine, invading primarily from Belarus in the north and Crimea in the south. The exact explanation as to why and why in February of 2022 will be explored by our guests later on. Readers are likely familiar with what occurred in the early months of the war. Despite fears that the Ukrainian state would collapse, Ukraine effectively pushed back Russia's assault on Kiev. Millions of Ukrainians mobilized from the bottom up with everything from widespread donations uh, to corporations with wartime conscription to the more notable 
episodes of protests against Russian soldiers, such as Ukrainian farmers using their tractors to hijack Russian tanks. In the past two years, Ukraine has stabilized the line of conflict and even taken back large swaths of land around Kherson and Kharkiv oblasts. Roughly a one-fifth of Ukraine is currently under occupation. But given the initial claim of the Kremlin to take all of Ukraine and impose a friendly regime, well, Ukraine's defense has been a remarkable achievement, one at an incredibly heavy cost, however. Estimates vary in terms of Ukrainian soldiers killed in action, with President Zelensky recently reporting 31,000 casualties and U.S. intelligence reporting as many as 70,000. U.S. officials estimate Russian soldiers killed in action to number 140,000 and as many as 360,000 wounded. The defense of Ukraine was accomplished not only due to the bravery and commitment of Ukrainians, but also the monumental assistance of their allies in Europe and North America. Ukraine, a country that had post-2014 only entered America's political discourse due to a scandal involving President Trump, has quickly become by far the greatest recipient of U.S. aid. Approximately $74 billion worth of aid was sent to Kiev from Washington throughout 2022. By comparison, the second highest recipient, Israel, received only $3.3 billion in that same year. Including its most recent package, the European Union has given even more, having already sent, or pledged to send, 138 billion euros. The entire size of Ukraine's economy in 2021 was only 200 billion US dollars by comparison. Western aid arrived in many forms, supporting Ukraine's government as it mobilized to defend itself from what was an existential near total war. It is difficult to know exactly what would have occurred without this aid, but undoubtedly it has been crucial not only to Ukraine's war effort, but to its ability to function as a state in highly abnormal circumstances. This brings us to one of the most pressing issues facing Ukraine. While the EU recently managed to pass a 50 billion euro support package to Ukraine, on the other side of the Atlantic, assistance to Kyiv has fallen victim to the United States' own divisive and dysfunctional internal politics. A critical faction of the Republican Party is now either apathetic, hesitant, or downright hostile to the idea of continuing to support Ukraine. Democratic and centrist Republican efforts to push funding through have so far proved ineffective. As a result, reports have surfaced of dire circumstances for Ukrainian troops on the front lines, especially in terms of ammunition and artillery shells. In the most contested parts of the front, Ukrainians report rationing ammunition and being outgunned by Russian artillery at a ratio of 8 to 1. Most recently, Ukrainian troops announced a rare retreat from the strategically important town of Avdivka. These disappointing developments come after last summer's largely failed counteroffensive. Many Ukrainians and their allies had long hoped this counteroffensive would trigger the kind of collapse of Russian lines as had occurred in the spring of 2022. This summer, however, Russian soldiers were well dug into their positions, having extensively prepared 
for Ukraine's assault. Add the failed summer counteroffensive to the ongoing political dysfunction in Washington, and the result is a grim outlook for Ukraine. Two years in, the optimism and inspiring resilience of Ukraine has faded somewhat. And much reporting from Ukraine these days reports doubts, anxiety, and fear, as much as it reports determination and commitment. What should we make of all this? What is the current situation at the front? How has war transformed both Ukraine and Russia? What is the future of this conflict? Well, to answer these questions and more, we now take you to our guest interviews. Julian Waller is a professorial lecturer in political science at George Washington University, lecturing on contemporary Russian politics. His research focuses on a variety of related issues, such as the comparative politics of Russia and the post-Soviet region, military and strategic studies, competitive authoritarianism, and illiberal politics and dynamics. In addition, in addition to lecturing, Professor Waller is a non-resident fellow at the Illiberalism Studies Program at the Elliott School of International Affairs and a research analyst at the Russia Studies Program at the Center for Naval Analysis, a federally funded research and development center specializing in national security and political issues. His work has appeared in a variety of publications and peer-reviewed journals, including the Journal of International Affairs, Political Studies Review, Problems of Post-Communism, the Journal of Liberalism Studies, Social Media and Society, and the International Journal of Constitutional Law. Uh, Julian Waller, thank you so much for joining us again on your uh, second appearance on Pendrop World News, actually. Very, very happy to be here, as always, Nick. Yeah. So just to you know, dive straight into the uh, facts on the ground in Ukraine, uh, one of the great reasons we were happy to have you on for this episode is your role as a specifically military analyst. Um, could you please explain for our viewers or listeners what the current situation on the front line in Ukraine is? Listeners likely heard about Ukraine's recent retreat from Avdivka, as well as uh, ammunition issues relating to uh, Western aid or the lack thereof. So can you break down for our listeners, what is the situation on the front at the moment? Sure, not a problem. Uh, as your listeners might know, uh, Ukraine engaged in a, a longstanding counteroffensive this summer that ended up petering out without much uh, territorial gain and at considerable cost. Uh, following this, uh, Russia has begun a slow rolling offensive of its own uh, to recapture further territory. Uh, most prominently, as you stated, was uh, Avdivka, uh, which has been sort of a, a focal point for the Russian axis. Uh, there are other uh, engagements all along the line of contact. Uh, we're also tracking uh, potential further pushes in places like Robotinia and other uh, such uh, points as well, uh, as well as in Kherson uh, region. Uh, Avdivka is important uh, because it uh, ended up uh, being something of a focal point for both the Russian offensive uh, as well as Ukrainian defensive measures. Uh, Ukrainian forces held ground for quite a long time before they ended up becoming nearly encircled. Um, mostly they were able to withdraw in good order, uh, at least the reports that are uh, publicly been made available so far. However, again, at very, very heavy cost. Uh, overall, uh, while in the uh, fall of this past year, many analysts uh, referred to the war as a, a sort of stalemate position. It's not quite correct at this point in time. Russia is making uh, slow uh, plotting gains, uh, but they're consistent across the front. Um, they are coming at uh, very high uh, casualty rates, high degrees of wear and tear on machinery, uh, and are presumably uh, causing considerable uh, issues in terms of uh, 
sufficient pressure at any given point on the front. We don't have incredible evidence that Russia is able to bring to bear all the forces it would like to. That being said, they have a consistent artillery advantage. Uh, the point about munitions, uh, we can think of it in terms of Ukraine not having enough. We can also think of it in terms of Russia having what they need. Uh, and that's more or less where we're, we're sitting right now. Um, so that's a long way of saying the war is in this current phase not going particularly well for Ukraine. Uh, it is a high casualty, uh, slow moving defensive position uh, that you, the Ukrainian armed forces are currently uh, situated in. Uh, it's likely to be like that for potentially the foreseeable future, the next several months. Uh, given leadership changes, we're unclear on what the new Ukrainian overall uh, battle strategy is. Uh, and um, observers in the West should, in general, uh, be at least moderately concerned uh, with the broader trajectory of the war. Although, think of it more in the tactical or maybe the operational tactical rather than the fully strategic at this point. To, to, to stay on Russia and sort of to go further into, into that, what do you read Russia's current war aims to be? Do, do you believe that there still is this grand mission of a total regime change, of, of tying all of Ukraine to, to Russia, you know, as I think really was very specifically articulated by Putin in terms of rhetoric and in terms of action, that it really was about conquest, about, you know, either installing a very loyal regime or, or maybe something even um, uh, more sort of... Um, uh, uh, formal in terms of political integration. Do you still think that's the the goal of of the war, or do you think the that the Kremlin has has you know woken up to reality a little bit? Because I think even in the, the the darkest scenarios one can imagine for the war, that that kind of option isn't really likely. Sure, it's a very good question. Um, we know that you know if the, if Russian war goals in February of 2022 were, were regime change, it, the intention being, of course, the entire country would undergo a regime change. It would also perhaps not require full occupation. Um, we don't know exactly how that would play out. We know that, for example, Roskvardia, the Russian yeah. National Guard troops, which are kind of a Praetorian uh, internal force um, under Vladimir Putin himself, uh, they had been bringing um, chain link fences and other sort of infrastructure for camps uh, to be uh, put in place in Ukraine. Those were never deployed, obviously. But there, there was obviously FSB plans to, for... Uh, supporting a new, more uh, pro-Russian-oriented government and in ensuring sort of loyalty. That, again, implies uh, a little bit more of a hybrid situation, trying to use Ukrainian proxies and then supporting them uh, with uh, Russian uh, military assets or intelligence assets as necessary, right? So that's sort of our dark plan in February 2022. Full regime change, plan for the entire country, see what happens, presume there's capitulation, right? Okay. Uh, with that, we'd, we're not going to get that now. Um, and we actually have uh, interesting data. We've, we have a lot of Putin speeches on the subject. Uh, we got re, uh, very interesting data from the uh, Tucker Carlson interview. I've written on it. Uh, I, I saw your to Twitter sort of, thread, actually. It was very interesting right. stuff. Yeah. yeah, so I ended up going viral on Twitter. There, there's also a, a, a article in the National Interest published a couple days ago, just sort of a little bit more formal, uh, talking about exactly what we gleaned. Uh, but one element of what we gleaned, first of all, um, beyond uh, sort of uh, reasons for the war, which was a major uh, point of interest from that interview, um, was some partial insights into uh, Putin's at least public uh, framing of a future negotiated settlement. Uh, he seems to believe that, uh, point one, uh, the annexed territories, the four provinces that have been annexed, 
uh, by Russia are going to stay Russian. Uh, of course, in the West, we view these as illegal annexations. Uh, regardless, uh, they're now enshrined in the Russian constitution. Um, they're now officially part of the Russian state. In fact, uh, just earlier today, uh, Ministry of Defense released a, a new announcement that uh, uh, the Russian military districts, which sort of administrative organizational subcomponents uh, that break, break down the country into sort of uh, contiguous groups uh, for military administrative purposes, uh, the four annexed territories are going to be included in the Southern Military District, not as a special subset, right? Which again, points to the, the, the sense of integration that these are, from Russia's perspective, these are now Russian territory. Um, that means that you can't have your initial regime change. The whole country is under kind of a Kiesling, uh Ukrainian pro-Russian figure, right? Like the, we already have partition, de facto partition. The question is how much more of that we get. Uh, and what, what Putin also suggested was that uh, he's still on the uses uses the rhetoric of denazification, right? Um, as well as uh, in addition to denazification, he uses the well sort of like gen general gen uh, rather generally kind of preventing uh, Ukraine integration into NATO and so on. Um, we're likely to see a Russian-led negotiating position, which is going to force both recognition of a ter territorial partition as well as some sort of constitutional guarantee over uh, Ukraine's future you know, political order. Now, that's Russia's side. Is that a prediction on what will happen? No. Um, we know, for example, that like based, based on these current uh, military campaigns, right, the, these operational uh, and uh, broader shifts, uh, is, it's still surrounding the Donbass. It's still sort of cleaning up these territories that have been formally annexed. Uh, we know that Russia would like to push on to Kiev. Do we think that it's very likely right now? Not unless there's a giant break in the line. Um, but Russian war goals are likely in the realm of both partition and a kind of um, imposed regime. They're likely, let's say the war were to stop today, they're going to get the partition de facto, if not de jure. Uh, it's going to be much harder for them to get any guarantees they'd be willing to take on. Um, regarding the you know, political regime in, in Ukraine. Um, we'll see. It's a little bit improper to speculate. Um, but it, one thing that we do know is that Russia is not interested in the 1991 borders. Uh, they, they've decided that as a state policy, that's not the case anymore. Yeah. And we can even, I don't know, from, from my own perspective, I think Russia has not been interested in the 1991 borders almost never, and, and certainly not since... Um, Putin uh, came in, into office in the uh, early 2000s. Um, let's pivot back to um, Ukraine um, for one or two questions. Um, the current situation in Ukraine is highly distinct from its uh, previous post-independence political history. Ukraine was known, you know, uh, even as sort of what would be termed sort of a hybrid political regime as a very uh, plural uh, political uh, system. Many, many parties, many, many media outlets all competing with each other, you know, very competitive politics, um, despite all sorts of issues with corruption and whatnot. Um, that's very different from what's going on right now. Ukraine has been in a state of martial law since the war began. Um, it seems very, very unlikely at this point that the Ukrainians will run a national election as had been previously scheduled. And it seems as if there are sort of cracks beginning to show in this system, uh, much more uh, critical coverage from the West, um, and then people within Ukraine 
like uh, uh, Vitaly Klitschko, the mayor of Kiev, being uh, much more critical of this general setup. Um, do you view this current political system as sustainable? It doesn't yet look as if they're pivoting away from it. You know, and I think what many Ukrainians might have been willing to accept for the first two years of the war, now that it seems as if this is going to be quite a drawn out conflict, I, I, is, does it seem as if Ukrainians are going to be okay with this system for another two years? What, what, what's your um, sort of, do you have any thoughts on that? It's a very good question, um, and it runs against runs into uncomfortable topics for Western yeah. audiences. Uh, it also runs into uncomfortable topics for Ukrainians uh, themselves. Um, Ukrainian politics shut down uh, when the war started, which is, of course, a very natural uh, kind of uh, response to uh, territorial invasion. Uh, Ukraine had pluralist electoral democratic politics before. Uh, that period of time. In fact, uh, just before the war, it was looking like Zelensky was starting to significantly drop in popularity. There were uh, factions that were arraying against him in Ukrainian political institutions. Uh, that all changed immediately uh, after the invasion. There was a massive, of course, rally around the flag effect um, tied up very strongly to Zelensky's sort of populist, charismatic persona as a figure who did not flee when the invasion took place, who... Uh, really did yeoman's work at convincing and providing sort of a rhetorical uh, strategy on the international stage that helps undergird a, a vast uh, international coalition. Um, with that, Ukrainian politics has been quiescent, right? Uh, it, they passed a state of emergency legislation, um, which essentially puts Ukraine out of the realm of pluralist politics, right? So the media is under control of the state, uh, writ broadly, Pro-Russian political parties have been banned. Uh, a variety of uh, pro-Russian or Russian sympathetic civil society organizations, religious organizations, anything that could sort of uh, provide an alternative uh, uh, sort of place of resistance, perhaps, or even just place of alternative view um, to the government has largely been uh, put away or at least put under stress and pressure. Uh, these are, again, very natural um wartime conditions. Censorship in wartime is a standard feature across all political regimes. Uh, degrees of state coordination in the media, state coordination in the economy, uh, strong efforts to ensure that there is not really a deviation from the government line so long as the state, the, the nation is under active military threat of annihilation. Those are very standard things. So Ukraine has done that, right? Um, what's interesting is now two years into the war, the cracks are starting to show. Um, you have a situation where uh, elections were supposed to be held in the fall for the parliament and for the president this spring. Neither of those are happening. So we're, we're beyond our sort of term. Uh, we also have a situation where there's been sort of an unprecedented uh, leadership crisis uh, at the upper uh, echelons of the Ukrainian Armed Forces military leadership. Um, uh, General Zeluzhny, of course, the commander in chief of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, has been retired um, after having clashed repeatedly with Zelensky over the direction of the war. Uh, approaches to uh, future mobilization uh, of conscripts and so on and so forth. Uh, these are natural things. So politics didn't fully go away in Ukraine, but they became very, very centralized in the presidential administration on the Bankova and Kiev, uh, in the military leadership itself, right, which uh, took over uh, certain territorial administrative uh, capacities in Ukraine. 
uh, Ukraine also has a centralized uh, system such that, you know, governors are already uh, broadly ordered to the president and so on. It's very easy to, there's, there's a strong sort of pyramid of power um, based around the Ukrainian president. That's just been further personalized, been further tightened. Um, so we have elite politics that's been mostly behind closed doors uh, with very, very strong disincentives to make it public and very strong disincentives to really break anything. Um, it seems like we're getting to the point where we're, we're starting to see a little bit of that. Now, I don't mean break as in the regime is going to collapse or anything like that. That's crazy. Uh, what we mean simply is that public politics is returning and politic, public politics in a wartime scenario is inherently destabilizing. It just is what it is. When, you're, when your original level is 100% behind the president, government does what it needs to do, anything not that is going to be more destabilizing. So we're entering a period of more unstable public politics in a system that's not going to have elections anytime soon. It's just not going to happen. Um, now, some people uh, really care about that and want to say, oh, Ukraine's an authoritarian regime or whatever, Zelensky is abusing his power. Um, I would just bracket that for the time being. It's not, it's both not feasible. And also it, historically, that's not really been the case um, that electoral democracies don't maintain democracy, the institutions of democracy during periods of war. Uh, and you just kind of put an asterisk there and see what happens uh, when it's over. Um, but yeah, we're in a, they're in a state of emergency. It's very obvious. There was a, it's interesting. This is kind of an aside comment, but there's a very popular, uh, online uh, blog publication for uh, European constitutional law scholars called Fifthassing's blog, uh, and it's very popular. Um, and they published a recent piece by two Ukrainian constitutional lawyers, basically saying that Ukrainian democracy was very strong and wonderful and pro-European, and mostly it was just a justification for why the state of emergency was legal. Um, and like that's fine. Uh, we don't need to get into tremendous emotive uh, concerns over the fact that there's not going to be elections for the foreseeable future. The reason as analysts why we should be interested in this is because there is not going to be elections, because there's not going to be any public oversight, right, which is an electoral function, and there's not going to be any new blood in political institutions. And presumably the parliament itself is going to remain kind of the subservient institution relative to the executive. Again, that's standard in wartime. Uh, where is politics going to take place? It's going to take place across the same set of actors in the executive and associated with the executive. So it's going to be the president, it's going to be the cabinet of ministers, and it's going to be the Ukrainian armed forces, which is frankly also a political institution at this point, again, given the context. So it matters quite a lot that Zeluzhny was forced out. It matters quite a lot who was chosen as his replacement, Sierski in this case. It matters quite a lot whether or not Troops are okay with that, right? It suddenly, it matters much more with the feel of the barracks. Um, that's not what you want in a healthy democracy, but this is wartime, right? This is, that's, that's, there's no such ideal situation. Um, and again, especially when you're on the receiving end of a great power invading you. Um, all of that to say, that's a little bit of a ramble, um, but all of that to say is that Ukrainian politics is likely to get a little bit more messy um, and perhaps considerably more messy over the coming year, because we have this first major round of public politics. It has aggrieved other political actors. It has shaken up hierarchies of authority, right? We have a new uh, commander in chief of the uh, armed forces. 
we do have criticism of Zelensky in a way that had not been kosher before. That matters. Um, we have continued, as you say, uh, pressure from the West uh, and un some uncertainty from the West over how much more support is going to take uh, to be given, uh, as well as the concern over whether any political decision made by the president, uh, made by Zelensky, is going to be second guessed by people here in Washington or in London or in Paris or in Brussels. Um, that's kind of a hidden component to this is that Ukraine is not fully sovereign. Um, and that may in fact have stronger ramifications as public politics further intensifies in the Ukrainian context. And again, it's at the elite level. Yeah. And it, it's such a, a break as well from the kind of politics that had existed in Ukraine um, for so long, which had a huge space for really, you know, sort of intense public mobilization. And of course, now with the war, so much of that energy goes into the war itself. Um, but it, it's hard to imagine mass protests at a time of war like this. But this really was, you know, Ukraine is a country that's had two sort of color revolutions since independence. So uh, a huge um, jolt or uh, uh, irregularity from Ukrainian politics uh, as beforehand. Um, let's pivot now in, in the, the last moments of the recording uh, to a very, very different political regime uh, that exists right now in, in Moscow. Um, before you, you left, because I know that we are um, you are a little short of time, um, what, what do you think is the current status of the regime and its security and its ability to control Russia? You know, and because from my perspective, you had the Wagner rebellion, but it looks as if Putin has weathered that quite well, actually. Um, you just had the killing of Alexei Navalny, which stoked all this um, outrage in, in Western circles and in liberal Russian circles that mostly now exist outside of Russia itself. But all of this does seem to indicate to me that Putin is not worried about public opinion really at all, um, that he feels very, very secure in his um, position. Uh, do you have a response to that? What, what do you make of the Kremlin's current um, you know, grip on the country? It's an excellent question. And you know, in broad strokes, I essentially agree with you um, that I think the Russian regime is quite stable. Uh, it's quite confident. Uh, Point one, it thinks it's winning the war. Uh, point two, as you say, it did manage the Prigozhin rebellion um, very, very well, all things considered. Uh, now, there's a caveat there. Now, the, the Prigozhin rebellion is one of the, the most important events in Russian civil military history and its breakdown uh, in recent times. And the outworkings of the Prigozhin rebellion are likely to be felt in the span of years or decades, right? Having that sort of toolkit now been opened once it's very possible that at some point it could happen again. But in the short term, uh, the crushing of Prigozhin's uh, insult to the president uh, was very successful. Wagner has been disbanded. The uh, political military baron component of Prigozhin's persona, right, as being a semi-autonomous, semi-independent political client in a feudal sense directly to the president who had his own armed force at his command that was separated from the Russian uh, armed forces military hierarchy. Uh, that is the only other place where that exists right now is in Chechnya. Um, and that's very important, right? So Kadyrov remains this other sort of smaller figure uh, with that kind of independent capacity. Um, but yes, you're exactly right. Um, it has been weathered in the short term and presumably, well, we shouldn't say presumably, there is no obvious other person who could sort of make this kind of a claim again. So that's been successful. 
Uh, as you note, again, the death of Alexei Navalny, which is, of course, a tragedy, uh, widely bemoaned uh, in liberal Russian circles in the West itself. Um, we don't know. We don't have good polling on how, how he's viewed in Russian society today. Uh, we do know that it's a complicated picture. And it has been a complicated picture for for some time. His uh, personage, his figure, has always been very two-dimensional or even one-dimensional in, uh, the, let's say, the American context or the Western European context. And he was always much more polyvalent as how people viewed him in Russia. Right? Many people didn't trust him for a variety of reasons. Um, so, again, with the death of Navalny, uh, Putin has uh, tied the bow on a decade-long tragedy, a truly a Greek tragedy, um, with uh, Navalny being the only other real politician, in a sense, in Russia's political system, and one who never succeeded at the end of the day. Uh, so it sort of ends an era um, in, a, in, a, in a very sort of grim, grim way. But yeah, uh, the Russian regime, which is uh, formally still a hegemonic electoral authoritarian regime, right, complete with dominant party, they're going to hold elections, it's going to mostly be a plebiscite, yeah, it's fine. Um, you know, it's not the same uh, as, a, as a democratic election or even an election in a competitive authoritarian regime or a uh, standard electoral authoritarian regime. But uh, broadly speaking, formally, the institutions all still exist. They're all oriented uh, towards the, the president uh, as sort of this pat uh, paternal figure. There is a state ideology that's being inculcated um, uh, well, successfully might be a strong term, but at least coherently across state institutions and across sort of how we can measure it in elite rhetoric. Uh, in a more sort of macro level, we can think of it as a personalist dictatorship, right? Um, truly, Vladimir Putin is the apex of a personalist political system. If he were to die suddenly, we would have quite considerable uncertainty. He does not have a successor. Um, that's obvious. Uh, we don't know what the direction of the country would go necessarily, uh, but there are no challengers in any sense of the term. So uh, Russia's quite stable. Uh, the upcoming presidential election will be a brief moment uh, where we might see some hints of um, instability is a strong word, but perhaps some dissent. Um, de depending on how obvious the fraud is, for example, um, we might find hints of degrees of sort of apathy, for example, people being forced to vote for the president. Uh, we don't really expect the numbers to, to mean all that much. Uh, but yeah, Russia is very, very likely to continue on this trajectory so long as Vladimir Putin is in office. Um, again, barring a massive health crisis or uh, assassination or something like that, uh, we expect Vladimir Putin to run through the next two terms of his presidency. Uh, institutions in part will continue to at least partially decay. Uh, and the uh, most important upper tier Russian elites will be concentrated in institutions like the Russian Security Council, uh, the Russian State Council, the top of the parliament um, as well, uh, the prime minister uh, and other sort of in, in institutions. So below that, we still actually have some um, institutional relevance, kind of like uh, the, the old sort of great offices of state the most informally important people tend to be the people in these offices. Um, but they're all sort of arrayed in a very, very strict hierarchy. Uh, we would be, If the war suddenly goes very poorly, that could change. Um, but until that's the case, no, we, we, we expect quiescence uh, on the Russian side in terms of its political order. Henry Hale is a scholar and professor of political science and international affairs at George Washington University. 
where he is the director of the Elliott School's Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies. He has, expert, he has extensive expertise in the former Soviet Union, with particular experience in political systems in post-Soviet Ukraine and Russia. In addition to his role at the Elliott School, Professor Hale served as the director or co-director for the Program on New Approaches to Research and Security in Eurasia from 2009 to 2023. Professor Hale has authored and co-authored numerous publications on Ukraine and Russia, including 2022's The Zelensky Effect, co-authored with a fellow Ukraine scholar, Olga Unok, and released with Hearst and Oxford Presses. Uh, Professor Henry Hale, welcome to Pentrop World News, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's good to be here. So I wanted to start off our conversation with going back to when the war first began. Um, this is an off-asked question, but it seems the appropriate one to start with. When the war first began, many people, you know, all the way from, you know, Moscow to Washington to London really did expect the collapse of the Ukrainian state or at least, a, you know, a, a relatively quick Russian victory. Um, obviously, that's not what happened. Ukraine mobilized and defended itself uh, quite effectively in the early months of the war and drove off the um, most threatening aspect of the Russian advance in terms of, you know, uh, decapitating Ukraine as a state, which was the advance towards uh, Kiev. And obviously, from you know over two years now, Ukraine has been able to defend itself for the most part. Uh, so, what do you think so many in the West got wrong about Ukraine? I think there were a number of misunderstandings. Um, first of all, an overestimation of Russia's own military power. Um, it certainly has a strong military and has performed very well under Vladimir Putin. But at the same time, it is still is an institution that's fundamentally. Um, corrupt in many different ways and um, also has a kind of outmoded structure that doesn't allow for a lot of flexibility on the ground uh, to account for unexpected circumstances. And part of the problem that the Russian military ran into was that they had not adequately uh, prepared in the sense of um, learning to understand the enemy that they were uh, trying to confront and in some ways actually create through this invasion. Um, so they actually had some of the same misunderstandings about Ukraine that many in the West had, that it was a, a state that was fundamentally corrupt, that national loyalties were not actually uh, that deep, that it was a society divided between um, uh, a, a Western-leaning West, but a Russia-leaning East that probably wouldn't stand up and fight for Ukrainian nationhood. So a lot of people, I think, in the West, including the um, American intelligence community, while they were very accurate in predicting that Russia would invade, uh, they were much less accurate in predicting uh, how Ukrainians would react. And one of the big things I think they missed was the strong sense of identification with Ukraine as a state that exists. Um, part of that, I think, was linked to the idea that, um, well, Ukrainians have very low levels of trust in their political parties, low levels of trust in their government. Um, things like that. Uh, but those words actually describe a lot of democracies, including the United States right now, where there's very low levels of trust in a lot of our institutions and leading politicians. And that doesn't mean that we want a foreign power to come in and take over. But uh, in the Russian mentality, I think their idea was that, well, dissatisfaction with the Ukrainian governing system actually meant dissatisfaction with the Ukrainian state as a whole and um, hid at least tacit sympathy for Russia that could be capitalized on. And so I believe a lot of people in the Kremlin thought that uh, a very quick strike, um, surgical moves, um, 
demonstration of force would basically lead Kiev to capitulate. They thought um, Zelensky might go the same way as uh, you know the authorities in Afghanistan, where the state basically imploded uh, at the end and um, and didn't really put up a, a fight at, at the very end. And so um, I, I think a lot of these misunderstandings just converge to uh, lead us not to anticipate the resistance that we uh, later saw. One other thing I guess I should highlight as well is that um, the last time we had seen the Ukrainian military um, in action against a, uh, a sudden attack was in 2014 when uh, Russia moved to annex Crimea and Ukraine's military didn't put up a fight. And in fact, there were uh, a lot of Ukrainian forces in Crimea that uh, defected over to the Russian side rather than resist. And um, what we didn't understand, at least those of us that weren't following it that closely, and um, you know, I confess myself, I wasn't that familiar with how extensive the military reforms were, were um, some very thoroughgoing military reforms, which had in fact dramatically improved the capacity of Ukraine's military. And um, it makes some sense because even though they hadn't stood up to uh, try and fight for Crimea in 2014, they had mobilized to uh, try and take back and, and push back and resist Russian advances in uh, parts of Eastern Ukraine in the Donbass region. And uh, even though they hadn't uh, been able to roll back the territorial gains that uh, Russia and its uh, kind of proxies uh, had, had made in that area, they gained a lot of combat experience. And so um, they, they wound up having a, a quite an effective military machine uh, put in place that actually had a lot of experience that was now reformed and much more uh, capable in, in a combat sense. Yeah, it's a great answer. And it, it, it shows that I think in some ways, the initial failure of the Russian invasion was as much a, a Russian failure as it was a Ukrainian victory. Because again, you know, you're talking about the ways in which Ukraine had improved its military, um, but also the ways in which the Russians just drastically underperformed. Um, sort of more on the idea of, of this being a, a Russian failure. I think that there was a misreading of Ukraine as a society, what you were sort of talking about uh, with this mass culture of mobilization that was not well understood outside of Ukraine. Um, but also, I think there was a misunderstanding of Russia, and in particular, sort of a, a misunderstanding of the Kremlin for a long time. It, it's very strange when you actually look back at some of the reporting and writing about Putin from like the mid 2010s, because they describe him as sort of this like uh, tactician, this, you know, uh, guy who is very attuned to strategy and not overplaying himself. And he had what you might consider sort of a strong record for a long time in places like Chechnya and Georgia and Syria, and then the attack on Ukraine in 2014, which seemed to be, you know, successful operations in, in many ways. And then you fast forward to now, we view the invasion of Ukraine as this mass strategic blunder. Do you believe that something changed fundamentally about the regime um, between, say, 2014 and 2022 that led to Putin making this historic mistake with, with, with the invasion? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, there, there's some indication that the Russians themselves were aware of some of the shortcomings. Um, you know, if one looks closely at uh, what people in military circles in Russia were saying, and sometimes even writing, which is how we know about it, uh, about the Georgian War, for example, in August of 2008, um, there was a lot of discussion that, in fact, the military there did not perform that well. Um, and of course, there, you know, it was up against a much, much smaller um, adversary. And uh, we were only really talking about conflict over 
the South Ossetia region rather than, you know, really dramatic advances against um, the rest of Georgia. Uh, but, you know, there was discussion about problems, but then of course the Syria operation went much better than a lot of people uh, expected. Um, so it, it is possible that perhaps as a result of that, um, they got overconfident and thought they could pull this off, but the military never tried anything on this scale uh, before, uh, you know, at least in the post, I mean, certainly in the post-Soviet period, you'd have to go back to the Soviet period, Afghanistan to think of something comparable. Um, Beyond that, it, it's really hard to say. I mean, there are a lot of theories about what uh, changed and what didn't change. I mean, I think there is a, a decent argument to be made that um, it was a matter primarily of, uh, you know, not even the Kremlin leadership, but Putin in particular, uh, coming to believe that the last chance that Russia, not just he, would have to uh, keep Ukraine in Russia's orbit um, was to engage in a large-scale military operation uh, relatively soon, um, just because you had seen a lot of internal developments in Ukraine that were not going Russia's way. Uh, Russia had, has expended over the years, certainly since Putin came to power, but actually all the way back going to Gorbachev and Yeltsin to try and keep Ukraine in. Gorbachev didn't want to let Ukraine go, but he was definitely uh, not going to deploy military force to keep it in. Um, same thing with Yeltsin. Yeltsin was very intent on trying to bring Ukraine back into its orbit. And in fact, a lot of the operations that he, uh, kind of machinations that he engaged in to um, dissolve the USSR were partly about trying to create a new structure that was much looser that would convince Ukraine to stay in voluntarily. Um, but again, you know, he wasn't willing or didn't think there was a need to go to great lengths to military force. And of course, under Putin, there were much more dramatic options, uh, much more uh, kind of dramatic uh, actions taken to try and keep Ukraine in, blatant interference in Ukraine's elections. Those tended to have failed. Um, basically, they got their man, uh, you know, maybe not entirely their man, but the person they wanted in as president uh, with Viktor Yanukovych in uh, 2010 in the presidency of Ukraine. And, he was making a lot of moves towards solidifying ties with Russia. Then he was overthrown in the revolution. Um, then after that, the, the nationalist government that took power in Ukraine, and by nationalist, I mean um, very determined to break with the uh, old imperial Russian influence, was defeated in an election by Volodymyr Zelensky, who had a reputation for um, being someone who was gonna call for negotiations with Russia, just sit down and talk to Putin about um, stopping the killing, uh, who himself was primarily a Russian speaker, was actually kind of famous in Russia, had made uh, a career in Russia uh, for six years, uh, working in a Russian, effectively kind of a comedy uh, performance entertainment circuit there. And they kind of thought that maybe they were getting their person in office and that maybe all their work to convince Ukrainians that uh, they should see their future with Russia um, was finally paying off. But in the end, Zelensky's effort to uh, try and sit down with Putin, I think, made clear to him that, uh, you know, this was not going to come to anything. And looking back at Zelensky's history and everything that he's shown that he stood for way back to his entertainment programming from when he was an, entertain an entertainer, shows that, you know, he was a, a European-oriented person. And, you know, his ideology that he was putting forth, his vision for Ukraine, his vision for Ukrainian identity was definitely something 
separate from Russia and in the European orbit. Although, you know, what he wanted, I think, was just good relations with Russia. Uh, but once it became clear that sitting down with the Kremlin wasn't going to yield anything, um, he started pushing back and taking a lot of the same actions that the previous leadership had taken, uh, reinforcing um, bans on certain Russian cultural products that were seen as, um, you know, potentially uh, avenues for Russian influence, strengthening the Russian uh, or strengthening the Ukrainian military against the Russians, um, pushing even more strongly for uh, integration with NATO and the European Union, all things that Russia took as signs of alarm. So that's kind of a long way of saying that uh, I think Putin around 2019, 2020, especially entering 2020, by that time it was pretty clear that they were not getting what they wanted from Zelensky either. And I think it's very possible that Putin at that point concluded that um, if, if you, Russia's ever going to keep Ukraine back in its orbit, it's going to have to act uh, with force and it's going to have to do so uh, as soon as possible. Then the pandemic hit, which probably interrupted the plans. And then after that, uh, you know, finally, once things recover, you see Russia start to flex its military muscle and launch the all out invasion. So I think it was probably... Uh, something like that. I mean, there are theories that COVID, uh, you know, isolated Putin and, um, you know, gave him too much time to think, uh, you know, maybe let him to go a little crazy, uh, you know, isolated in a, in a bubble away from advisors who might have cautioned him against uh, uh, such folly as an all out invasion. Um, can't rule that out. But I, I think other factors explain uh, what was going on as well, you know, with, without having to resort to to that. Um, so I think it was probably a set of changes primarily in the way that that Putin uh, and some of the people around him, but he influences how they think, were thinking, uh, as well as developments in Ukraine, which I think were interpreted uh, by Russia as posing a grave threat to its visions for keeping Ukraine firmly in Russia's geopolitical orbit, or at least keeping it neutral, um, because that, that was not where it was headed. Yeah, it's a very interesting and, and rather unusual answer. I think things around what particularly about Zelensky felt threatening to Putin, like you were just discussing, don't really break through into mainstream discussion that if there ever was going to be another Russian friendly leader post-2014, it might have been Zelensky. And then when it wasn't, that this really sort of crystallized um, Ukraine's Europe, like the, the reality of Ukraine's tra European trajectory in the minds of, of a lot of policymakers in Moscow. Um, now, I'd like to pivot towards uh, the current day. Um, you know, between 2022 and 2024, Ukraine is able to hold off a, a full Russian uh, regime change operation in Kiev. It's able to push completely uh, the Russians out of the northern sector that they attack from. Um, they're able to make meaningful counter uh, advances uh, around Kharkiv Oblast and Kherson Oblast and liberate um, large swaths of territory there. Um, but I think that the prevailing atmosphere has really shifted in the past um, few weeks for a variety of reasons. Um, the coverage around Ukraine has really, I think, termed uh, uh, decisively negative. Masha Gessen, the famed Russia journalist, has a uh, sort of new and really surprisingly to me grim piece out in The New Yorker on um, what she sort of terms Ukraine's newly entrenched elites or elites who risk being entrenched. You know, she refers to Ukraine's democracy as being, you know, in part in darkness at the moment. Um, from your um, eyes as a, as a Ukraine analyst and, and scholar, do you believe there has been a significant mood change within Ukraine? We hear these stories about draft dodging, about 
you know, the, the uh, Zelensky not being as popular as he once was. What's your impression of the mood now in Ukraine? Well, I think there are different aspects of the mood that are relevant here. Um, I think what hasn't changed is a determination to fight to the end and a confidence in ultimate victory. Um, but, you know, the facts are evident to Ukrainians just as they are to those of us outside, which are that the, um, the war hasn't gone as people had hoped in the spring of 2023 when there was talk of a counteroffensive that might once and for all, um, you know, drive the Russians back and reclaim the lands. And so now it's much clearer, I think, that it's going to be a long um, war, something that's just going to be, you know, a, a process of, of grinding until finally maybe there's a breakthrough at some point in time. Um, but it's going to be something that's going to be costly. Um, and the Ukrainians have had trouble also getting um, aid that they need, uh, you know, military support, financial support from the West. Uh, in particular, the United States right now stands out. And so I think all these things um, do uh, create a certain different mood in, uh, in in Kiev than was there before. Uh, that said, uh, you know, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, the, the resolve to win isn't uh, any any less. Um, and you know, these uh, events are complicated. Ukraine's a complicated society. Um, I think, you know, there's a tendency to present sort of a simplistic picture of it in the media that everybody's united and, uh, you know, speaking with one mind, but Ukraine's a plural society. Uh, it, it's, it's democratic, uh, has a plurality of, of, of interests um, and uh, political rivalries, just like we have in the United States. And, uh, you know, these come out, especially when uh, events aren't going as, as, as had hoped. So, um, I think the optimism is still there, but there's a recognition now that there's the war is going to be uh, long and, and fought out. And part of, I think, what that uh, means is that, uh, you know, there are a lot of people in Ukraine, just like outside of it, thinking, well, what should be the next direction? Maybe we need uh, leadership changes at the top. And some people think that, uh, you know, maybe that should be at the presidential level. Um, Zelensky's concluded that uh, the, the government needs a, a reset, right, which involved the replacement of the top military commander, Valery yes. uh, Zeluzhny, um, as well as some other officials. So I, I think that's not surprising, given the way things have gone. Um, so and at the same time, I think, you know, there have been constant reports of um, corruption uncovered in Ukraine, um, but partly that's because they're still going after it, even during the, the military um, uh, efforts. Uh, so I don't think that's necessarily a bad sign. Uh, you know, everybody knows that there was a, a, a corruption problem in Ukraine that uh, just like there is in many different countries, and it's probably much less than there was in Russia. It's just in Russia, you don't hear about it so much because Putin controls it all uh, personally. <laughs> Uh, you know, through his administration. Whereas in Ukraine, there's an active process. There are prosecutors that are rooting it out. Um, there are still well, and also uh, media. people, uh, you know, in Ukraine who are trying to take advantage of the situation for the worst. But I think we, you know, shouldn't lose perspective on the fact of how uh, incredibly effectively U Ukraine's military is mobilized. If it were thoroughly corrupt, uh, you know, we would not have seen it, it fight off and fend off the Russian military in, in the way that it had. Uh, so, you know, it's more sort of there are certain pockets, uh, you know, within some of these industries that are trying to take advantage of the situation. But I think the government is taking action. And of course, you know, when this is reported uh, openly, uh, as happens in Ukraine, because it still has, uh, uh, you know, media freedom, at least as much as you can have in a situation of martial law, 
uh, you know, the, these things become open and they, they can create the impression of something uh, that's a, a bigger challenge than it is. But I think if we just keep perspective uh, on how effectively Ukrainian institutions have been working, um, you know, then I think you, you'll have a better perception about, um, you know, kind of what, what, what really is happening in the country. So um, I, I think there, you know, there has been a, a mood shift that I think has been linked to uh, just the, the, the reality that, uh, you know, they're kind of in a new phase of the war, uh, you know, that's going to be kind of a longer grind, grind out war where maybe some new shift in strategy is going to be necessary to, uh, you know, make big advances. Um, you know, and I would just say, I mean, part of the, the, the reason why we see this, uh, you know, is that uh, one thing that the Russians were able to do during the time that uh, a lot of people in the West were kind of waffling on how much or whether to give Ukraine a lot of the, the uh, material that it needed, um, you know, Russia was able to use that time to lay all kinds of mines, which put Ukrainians in the position of, you know, do we just throw all of our people at these mines to overcome them, uh, you know, or do we kind of risk having the counteroffensive stalled? And so, you know, there, there are real challenges that they face due to Russian tactics. Um, but again, that just calls attention to the fact that Ukraine does need to adjust to the reality of the war. I think they're, they're doing that. Um, and it doesn't mean it's without problems for sure. But, uh, you know, I think the, the resolve is still there. The commitment is still there. Um, you know, so I, I don't see any real issue there. And still, uh, you know, despite some people having, you know, more openly expressing doubts in Zelensky, um, you know, his public approval ratings still remain, you know, very large uh, majorities. Yeah. And you know, just on the topic of corruption also, because this is something that does get a lot of attention, one line that stuck out to me in the Gessen uh, piece on Ukraine is that when you take a system that already has some amount of corruption in it and you pour in billions in foreign support, that's actually going to be a, at least a momentary um, boon to certain aspects of corruption, that corruption requires on a federal level, it requires some kind of pot to steal from. And the West, you know, for better, I would say, has increased the size of the pot. So there might be um, serious allegations of corruption um, now and again. But to bring it down onto the sort of the street level in Ukraine, um, can you unpack for our listeners what exactly politics has looked like for, for the last two years in Ukraine? Um, you know, we heard that they're, they are not going to go through with elections in, in Ukraine. And uh, and so can you, can you unpack for our listeners what exactly is going on in Ukraine, a country that for a very long time was well known for a very pluralist uh, system, a variety of media actors and, and political actors. Um, so can you uh, explain that for our listeners? Yeah, sure. I mean, what, one thing I would just add, uh, you know, to wrap up uh, the, the discussion of, of corruption is I, I don't necessarily think that pouring more money in in this particular circumstance is necessarily giving a boon to corruption just because the, the fact that so much of it is military oriented and oriented towards the humanitarian effort, um, you know, that's not the kind of thing that is going to uh, be easy for the corruptioners to, uh, you know, get away with. I mean, there's such a moral um, public force um, mobilized against that kind of activity, uh, you know, including people at the highest levels of government that you know, that it's just, you know, you're, you're not going to be siphoning away that money when it's very badly needed. I, I think still it remains more in these, these small pockets and it's not really a lot of large scale um, theft, uh, you know, and, and the, almost everything is going to purpose and I think still being used well. As far as the um, 
domestic political situation. That's the dilemma that a country that's invaded, a democracy that's invaded uh, faces, right? Because you have to mobilize the war effort. You're being shelled every day. Um, civilian targets, ordinary citizens uh, all across the country, everybody's vulnerable. How do you really have democracy uh, in that kind of moment? So you have martial law, that's what martial law is for. There are democratic procedures for declaring martial law in all democracies for the most part. Um, Ukraine has that, but once you have martial law, um, martial law itself is not democracy and it's designed to uh, promote the war effort. And I think that's ultimately what Ukrainians were wrestling with because on one hand, democracy is very much part of Ukrainian identity. And even more than that, it's part of what Ukrainians think distinguishes them from Russians, just because Ukraine, as you referenced earlier, has mm. this history of mass mobilization and toppling tyrants, um, which you don't really see in Russia so much. And, uh, you know, certainly under Putin. And so you're, for your ordinary Ukrainians, this is very important to them. And in fact, uh, there's evidence that, uh, you know, whereas in a lot of countries, direct exposure to victimization and, and being victimized in war might lead you to be more authoritarian, whereas in Ukraine, it actually uh, is documented to have produced somewhat of the opposite. People become more supportive of democracy uh, after being exposed more closely to the, the harms of the war. And so what do you do with that when you have a military situation that makes it very, very difficult? Um, so, you know, I've asked a lot of people about that from Ukraine and heard a lot of uh, of of what's been reported. And um, I think the bottom line just comes down to, you know, a few considerations, um, you know, one of which is how can you keep people uh, safe during democratic procedures? Because if you have voting taking place, you have people congregating in polling places, uh, which could make them potential targets. That also makes possible uh, Russian disruptions, uh, perhaps politically influencing where they strike, when they strike. And so what do you do if this disrupts um, the actual electoral process. Um, secondly, uh, you know, there's the consideration of, well, maybe you could hold this online. Um, and I, you know, I, I still think that maybe you could find a way to do it, but uh, there's a lot of uh, worry that conducting elections online might not be fully trusted because that might, you know, who's to say it couldn't be hacked by the Russians or somehow disrupted, or would it be considered fully legitimate if you had some kind of unexpected result or if you had the expected result um, you know, would people really consider that mm -hmm. legitimate? Um, third, I've also heard the um, point of view that a lot of people who held or formally hold political office in Ukraine now have gone to fight, right? They're on the front lines. Uh, so not just voters, but people who would actually hold office and be among Ukraine's best political leaders. Um, so what do you do then? Would they leave combat in order to come back and run for office and then maybe serve? Um, or uh, do you only have people end up serving who don't fight or aren't engaged in the fighting? Um, these are all considerations that, you know, that could be disruptive if they wind up having to leave the service. So they're just all kinds of practical considerations um, and security considerations, you know, on top, of, on top of the idea that, well, maybe holding political competition in wartime could be destabilizing. I mean, I, I doubt that's a big concern. I imagine that you'd have, like, for example, Zelensky put forth his candidacy and, you know, maybe you'd have a couple other people and there'd be a rallying effect around him. But, you know, that's a concern as well. But I just think there are all these practical considerations. But I think they agonize over this just because democracy is such a central part of their um, identity. 
Um, but it is one, it's kind of an irony, right? Russia's going through uh, a presidential uh, election, quote unquote, uh, you know, where, while Ukraine has deferred it. Uh, but on the other hand, one's a sham election and the other is, can you really have a, a real election um, not wanting to have a sham election? So uh, I think that's kind of my understanding. And I think broadly the population is, is understanding of that, even though there are a lot of people who think that maybe you should have some kind of election. The, the, the broad public view is that it's just not practicable now and that once the situation stabilizes, uh, you know, you'll have democracy come back, you'll have elections and uh, then, you know, things will be getting back to uh, normal or from the Ukrainian point of view, hopefully a lot better than what the normal is now. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think that one thing that in addition to the domestic or cultural factors that are going to keep Ukraine sort of rooted in, in roughly democratic practices, there's also the uh, gravity the, the, the being pulled towards Brussels, that for a country like Ukraine, and if you go to sort of middle income, former communist countries in East Europe, the absolute consensus among so many is that the future is the European Union. And to get into the European Union, you need to have strong um, democratic institutions. So just really strong incentives for Ukraine in the long run to, to you know, maintain its and improve it in many ways. It's um, democratic uh, uh, sort of tradition, one could say. Um, yeah, I agree. But, I think that's you know, one of the great fact. irony. Definitely. Uh, I think one of the but to pivot to this side of the Atlantic, um, one of the sort of great ironies you often hear discussed is that uh, it often can seem as if Ukraine war fatigue is stronger in those countries that are not actually themselves directly fighting it in, in the war, unfortunately. Um, in the United States, we just have had this big uh, political showdown um, that is yet uh, to be resolved as of the time of our conversation. Um, the House or uh, the Senate yesterday uh, passed a, quite a large uh, foreign uh, spending bill that included uh, around 60 billion, I think, dollars for Ukraine in assistance. It does not look as if it's going to be able to at least easily pass through the House anytime soon. Um, there is a consolation prize for Ukraine in that recently the EU was able to um, uh, push through about $50 billion in, in aid. But what do you think will be the consequences for Ukraine if the United States either takes a considerably longer time uh, than expected to deliver significant financial aid or has to cut down the amount of aid significantly or in you know a really severe case scenario uh, scenario is not able actually to um, provide aid to Ukraine soon? Yeah, I do. Th I mean, Ukrainians will fight on regardless of whether or not they get the aid and they'll get some aid from uh, Europe. Uh, but I, I think without United States aid, it prolongs the war and prolongs the carnage because Ukrainians are, are not giving up. And I think they're determined to fight uh, to the end. And I think they have the capacity to. I mean, they have Ukraine is not a small country, right? Uh, Russia, you know, is maybe three times bigger, but that's, you know, that's not like 100 times bigger. Uh, you know, you have a country of over 40 million people. Um, there are a lot of people that can mobilize, especially when they have such high resolve. I think a lot higher resolve than the, the soldiers and the masses in Russia, uh, you know, would be fighting with. But that said, um, they need arms. And in this particular battlefield, right, where, uh, you know, they're, they're facing big challenges and Russia's just throwing um, bodies at them, basically, uh, and uh, mobilizing its own technology. 
uh, you know, they need the support from the United States and they need it in considerable amount, um, not to keep fighting because they're going to keep fighting, but to actually have a chance of really turning the tide and uh, eventually pushing back and, and winning. Um, you know, the fact that they have to push through all these minefields means, you know, you need the kind of weapons that will be able to help them to push through that and actually, um, you know, hit targets in, in, you know, the Russian controlled areas that are going to hurt and hit its forces. And, uh, you know, with, with that aid uh, and with that um, ability to push back, uh, you know, that's when you start getting the, the possibilities for this actually to end, which I think the best possibility for it to end really um, is for Ukraine to make some serious advances that then weakens, starts to weaken confidence in Putin's leadership even greater. Uh, so long as he kind of appears to be able to hold on to a certain amount of territory, he can claim that he has some kind of victory. Um, he can present evidence uh, in the form of uh, TV reports from occupied areas that can be completely staged, but you know show that, well, you know, look, we're rebuilding and we're controlling these areas. Um, but you know, if, if those start to get rolled back, it becomes harder and harder for him to hide the folly and to say that the costs involved in all this were justified. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think the regime is as stable as a lot of people think it is. Um, you know, again, it's hard to say. Uh, you know, my sense of regimes like the one that, uh, you know, Putin leads right now is that they're very, very stable until they're not. And uh, they can last for a long time, but they're kind of brittle. Uh, you know, one random event, can lead to the uh, kind of a chain reaction type um, uh, downfall, the whole thing, especially when there's sort of neg there's negativity uh, underpinning it. And I, I don't think that, like, I mean, certainly this uh, invasion is not something that's generated joy in Russia. Um, you know, some survey work that, uh, you know, I had a role in organizing in Russia um, has indicated, you know, since the wartime period that uh, the, you know, the dominant emotion there is anxiety. Uh, you know, much greater than sort of, uh, you know, hope or inspiration or confidence. Um, and I, I think that's telling. And so I do think that uh, the U.S. support matters a lot in, in giving Ukrainians a chance to push through and make some breakthroughs. I think they'll eventually be able to do it just because their resolve is greater and they have manpower and they're going to have woman power, um, power from all uh, genders. And they have... Um, uh, you know, they're going to have enough support from other allies to continue to, to push forward, but I think it'll take them longer. And the longer it takes them to make that breakthrough, the more Putin has a chance to survive and uh, to continue to impose costs uh, on Ukraine. So, um, uh, you know, I, I think it's, a, it's, it's an unfortunate situation what we see in the U.S. now. Now it's time to spin the globe. And our pin is dropped on Cuba. So make sure to stay tuned on your podcast app or on YouTube to hear the latest news, insights, and analysis surrounding Cuba. And as a note, that will be the final pin drop episode that I, AJ Camacho, will be the chief producer of. I will be leaving Pindrop, at least for the time being, to work at a new position as a reporting intern for END News' Climate Wire, which is a division of Politico. If you want to make sure that new episodes of Pindrop, whether I'm there or not, are downloaded to your device automatically, 
make sure to follow or subscribe on your podcast app. If you're watching on YouTube, please consider subscribing to our channel and ringing the bell to hear notifications. Our guests today were Julian Waller and Henry Hale. I'm AJ Camacho, co-producer and anchor here at Pindrop. My co-producers are Diego Austin and Nick Castillo, and Nick was the chief producer of today's episode. Pindrop World's News was created by Ian Kearns. Thank you.